everyday theology, where we don't tell you what to believe or why to believe it, but rather explore our Christian beliefs and why they matter for us in relation to God, to creation, and to others. My name is Aaron Ross. Well, today on Everyday Theology, I'm super excited to have a repeat guest, someone who uh, I've had conversations, had lots of conversations with before, and one of my favorite human beings. Um, his name is Rick Wadholm. <laughs> and so, Rick, thanks so much for being back with us today. Uh, now, now you're just making my head grow. Well, it's bald. It's, it's bald. It's definitely bald, but at least I got the beard back. You know, I got the you beard know, it, back. That's good. Cause without the beard, I mean, our listeners, they can't see you without the beard, but it was, <laughs> it was an interesting phase of your life, Rick. It's disturbing. It was really it, disturbing. Maybe a little, but Rick, yeah. if you wouldn't mind, um, reintroducing yourself to our listeners, so they can get to know you a little bit again before we dive in today. Yeah, uh, certainly I'm glad to be back with you. Uh, did my PhD at Bangor University in Wales with John Christopher Thomas, writing on a theology of the spirit in the former prophets. That's the books Joshua, Judges, Samuel, Kings. And then specifically taking a Pentecostal take on that, a Pentecostal attempt at hearing those texts and the spirit yeah. in those texts. So I, I um, worked for a bunch of different schools. I, I'm trying to even remember, but that was already last December, I think, we were together. I don't know that a lot has changed. I'm writing, got a number of books still underway, literally was working on one this morning. Uh, got to get my editorial introduction written. Um, that, that one's a majority world uh, Pentecostal theological education um, volume, yeah. collected essays, so – that's a good yeah, update. Yeah, number of projects. Yeah. Once once they're out, you need to let us know, and we'll we'll let everyone know about them. Yeah. Thanks, man. Um, and also, just the fact that you can write, I'm impressed. <laughs> um, Rick, today I would love to have a chat about something that I am woefully not great at, and I take that approach to go. I recognize how little I know about this subject, but it's a subject that you're passionate about and you know about. So I want to have a conversation with you on the prophets of the prophetic texts and what the heck do we do with them? Because if we're honest, they can often seem a lot of doom and gloom uh, right? with some redemption, but sometimes not. Sometimes just like, hey, this is all going to suck for you. See you later. Uh, so I, I, I am asking this both for our audience and also actually just for me, help me as someone who primarily does theology and more so even New Testament theology, help me understand the prophets and be a better reader <laughs> of the prophets. And so if you yeah, have, let me, we let can me just start with just like issues right now, just in the next few minutes, plenty of those. Uh, <laughs> so if we can start, you know, just in a basic, like, you know, what are the prophets? How do we think about the prophets and what is a better way to even start approaching these texts that often aren't really read very often in our church? Yeah. Uh, all great questions. If we're thinking about the texts of the prophets, uh, it's interesting. So I teach a course as I'm teaching actually literally right now this semester on the former prophets, which are not usually by most of us considered prophetic texts, but that's the books of Joshua, Judges, Samuel, and Kings. 
we usually call those history, which is problematic in its own ways, right? To, yeah. to treat it as simply history, as if it's right. just telling stories. No, this is theological history. We ought to clarify that. But in the Jewish uh, canonical framework, um, they, they're actually called former prophets because those are the earlier sort of prophets. It's, it's largely collections of stories about prophets that may in fact have been compiled by prophets themselves. So you've got these long sagas of Elijah, Elisha, but you've got other prophets mixed in into that, obviously Samuel. But even Joshua becomes this prophetic character. You have unnamed prophets who pop up here and there, Micaiah ben Imla against Ahab. and um, anyway, All the so, names that when you were asked to read something yeah, and, you, you know, Sunday school or even Bible college, you're like, blah, 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 blah. And then you just kept going, right? Yeah, exactly. So I think just even to reframe it, right? So here's the story of Israel. What happens when Moses dies and to Deuteronomy? What happens when the people cross over the river into the land to take possession of it? Yeah. What happens is Yahweh, the God of Israel, has not abandoned them, but continues to speak to them. And mm. despite their continuing cycles, as we encounter in Judges, upon the death of Joshua, the people keep just doing whatever they want, getting in trouble. The Lord hands them over. But he never ceases sending a messenger. He never ceases from his mercy and kindness of speaking to them. Though he brings judgment, he also brings mercy. Right. Right. So that becomes the story that stretches out from the books of Joshua through Second Kings, where the people are off in exile, now reflecting on how in the world did we get here? Hmm, right? Yeah. Uh, and it's a prophetic retelling of what the God of Israel has done towards these people, who they are, what kind of people they are, rotten, uh, what kind of God he is, faithful and good, right? Yeah. And his, his persistent love towards them through prophetic voices. All right. So that's this prophetic history, if you will. But then we always think of the writing prophets, right? Uh, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. And of course, we, we tack in Daniel, though, again, that's that's another debatable issue with the right. Hebrew camp. Yeah. But then like the minor prophets, those 12 uh, that get lumped together and quite early were lumped together as a, a collection. Um, I shouldn't say quite early, meaning like, you know, once Malachi is written in like, you know, 400, 450, whatever. Uh, so so we, we get we get this sense, though of these diverse voices that uh, we, we have to allow them to say their own things, kind of like in New Testament studies, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. So even though uh, the, the synoptics speak with similar voices, they have unique things to contribute. Right. They may, in fact, take sayings from the Lord Jesus in different ways. Yeah. Placing them. We, we could think of actually the prophetic tradition in a similar fashion. So they are in some ways engaging with Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. So the Torah of Moses, the law of Moses, in light of oh, oh, the, these people and where they find themselves in, in yeah. life. So how do we walk in faithfulness to the God of Israel in light of his covenant with us as a people? Right. Uh, and right. again, <laughs> as you were highlighting, uh, the prophets are really good at pointing out we kind of suck as people. Like we're just <laughs> rotten. Yeah. Uh, that, that becomes the prophetic tradition uh, largely. I mean, sometimes it's just really a downer. Sounds like there's nothing good about these people. And Isaiah may actually say something like that. All our righteousness is as uh, filthy rags. Yeah. Um, so, uh, man. So Wait, so you're saying that wasn't Paul? 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So and, and th- these all, of course, form the foundation, obviously, for the New Testament. Right. Right. So the New Testament era, uh, largely Jewish writers reflecting on the texts of Israel, these this prophetic tradition that is itself reflecting on in some fashion the Torah. Yeah. Uh, and speaking yeah. to the community of God that though we don't deserve it, this God is amazing. He is so gracious and compassionate, abounding in love, quick to forgive, slow to anger. He will not tolerate sin forever, but he right. is a good God, faithful to his covenant. So so I, I think that that maybe is super – that's probably a way longer introduction than you wanted. But just kind of trying to orient our, those listening to what we're thinking of when we're talking about the prophetic literature. Yeah, and maybe even – you know, diving just real quickly into that word prophetic is helpful for many as well. And so, you know, just defining, how would you, especially as it relates to those texts, define that prophetic word? Yeah, we, again, this is one of our issues. We, we tend to hear words through our own filters, through our own enculturated filters. So when we hear prophetic, we usually hear of something almost like fate, Yep. Something that has been dictated about the future. It's just going to happen one way or another. It's going to happen. Yeah. That's precisely not what the prophetic literature is. <laughs> Dang it. <laughs> yeah. In fact, it, it, so we could think of the prophetic literature. Usually it's described in, in two different ways as foretelling and forth telling. Yeah. So foretelling, speaking about the future, forth telling, how must we be in light of the future? Hmm. Right. So, uh, but we, we tend to emphasize the foretelling and we treat foretelling and honestly, our, our public media totally influences the way that we think about this theologically at a, at a popular level. So that foretelling like, Oh, the prophecy said it, you know, so like, Oh, it must (laughs) be fulfilled exactly as the prophecy said. I always think as a nerd of Harry Potter and, you know, the prophecies and their little like glass orbs and you know but but quite honestly i mean you think about it at the popular level people hear a prophecy and they think ah then it's going to happen it just has to happen exactly like this right but that's exactly not the intended function of the prophetic it's not to declare always necessarily what must be but what might be dependent Mm. upon our response to this god speaking to us at this moment. So who is this God mm-hmm. and how must we respond to him? So the forth telling actually needs to be pushed to the front. Uh, what, what I like, we if, I can, if I can just, because what you said there, I think is really something to be expounded on that the foretelling wasn't a, this is how it is going to be or must be right. But how it could be in light of our response and right. if you can maybe throw an example or if you have something off the top of your head of being like, yeah, let's talk about it this way, because I think that's really the key that many people miss in that even the foretelling notion of prophetic is that that deterministic fate of, well, it says this is going to happen. So no matter what, this is going to happen versus, hey, this could happen if you do this. Yeah. So if you have any examples, I would love that. One of the most pronounced is Jonah, right? Yeah. Jonah doesn't even call for repentance. He literally says, you're going to be destroyed. Full stop. (laughs) Right? Thanks, Jonah. Okay, so 
<laughs> if if we judge them, so I, I was having a conversation actually last week with a couple of my students about this very thing. Uh, if if we go back to Deuteronomy and the requirements of a prophet, how do you know if a prophet is a true prophet sent from the Lord or not? Mm, yeah. One of the criteria is does it come to pass? But I said the moment that we treat that as uh, as if it's just locked in stone. We don't have to continue discerning trustworthiness or not trustworthiness. Mm, yeah. And we imagine that if the Lord says it, it doesn't matter what I do, as if I couldn't possibly cast myself at his feet in repentance, in the hopes that maybe, just maybe, this God will have mercy, which is precisely what the Ninevites, who worship other gods, they have their own gods, right. which are clearly more powerful than this God. I mean, clearly, because they're dominating the northern kingdom. Yeah. So it's like, okay, so uh, this is in their very territory. So why would the Ninevites be afraid of some foreign god of some smaller kingdom? Right? Right. And yet, they're broken. Uh, national repentance. Right. So, uh, so I mean, that, that's that's like one of those... And so they, they cast themselves as mercy. That's one of those clearest examples. But you see this actually happening a number of times. I think of like, for instance, uh, Hezekiah, uh, he's supposed to die. He doesn't die. Manasseh, same sort of thing, right? right. The, these judgments that are actually avoided. Josiah, right? Uh, Josiah, when the, the scroll of the law of Moses is discovered in the temple as it's being repaired, Josiah tears his clothes uh, repentance calls for this national return to Torah, but he realized like we're just done. And the Lord says, "Okay, you know what? Not in your day, but in your son's day." Hmm. So we can say, "Oh, well, it's still going to happen." No, does it still have to happen for the sons? If it could be averted by Josiah, maybe just maybe for Jehoiakim or Jehoiakim right. or Zedekiah, they don't have to fall into the trap of simply saying, well, the Lord spoke it, so it must be done. Instead, they which, could possibly plead with him. And he might he might actually listen. This God might actually hear them. Which you know begs the answer when Jonah, when we look at Jonah as you know, this like resistant prophet, right? You know going in a boat, going the wrong way, you know, you got a fish in there and, and, and everything happening at the end of the story, even though it ends with him, you know, being kind of a whiny baby, like kind of like a, Oh God, you didn't do what you said you were going to do. At some level we can look at Jonah and go, well, according to Deuteronomy, Jonah should have been stoned, right? Like he should have been put to death because right. he, his, his judgment, God will destroy you. Doesn't come to pass at least then when he makes the proclamation because they actually come to repentance and God relinquishes his anger. Right. Right. Which if we is treat really, it simplistically. Yes. Yeah. If you treat it very simplistically, like, or quote unquote, trying to read it overly literal, you, you miss it. Right. You miss right. what I think what you're saying, which is really beneficial that a lot of people have a hard time reading the prophetic text because they miss the element of how do the people respond and right. are they being trustworthy? Are they having allegiance? Are they being faithful to Yahweh, even amidst that prophetic call, if it's bad, right. or in in terms of that prophetic call, if it's good? Right. 
So I know, I know we had um, previously not on recording, but talked about Amos. We've talked about it a few times and I just translated through the book, providing fresh translation for a friend who had wanted to do it for this public recorded reading and stuff. So he wanted to avoid um, any kind of trademarking copyright issues. So literally I just translated the book for him and gave him a copy. Uh, but here's the deal. That's fantastic. Uh, yeah. But thinking about Amos, Amos keeps saying for the first couple of chapters, for three sins, no, for four, I will not <laughs> relent. Right. I will not relent. So that sounds pretty clear. I mean, I would say that's pretty emphatic. For three, no, for four. And he names yeah. off the nations. I will not relent. I'm going to send fire. I will consume you. I will destroy you. But then we get these moments, for instance, in chapter five that repeats this phrase several times, turn or return, turn and live. You don't have to die. But I'm telling you, 10 of you will go out of a city. Only one's coming home. A hundred of you will go out of a village. Only one's, uh, you know, only 10's coming home. Yeah. Not even going to be enough folks to bury you guys. And none of you are going to want to mention the Lord as, as you're doing this because you're so terrified of judgment. Hmm. So, you you know, the man will escape from the bear only to encounter a lion, escape from right. the lion into his house, leaning against the wall, and he gets bit by a snake hiding in the wall. Oh, gosh. <laughs> the Lord's like, uh, if you ascend to the heavens, this is, this is all from Amos, if you ascend to the heavens, I'll pull you down. Oh, if you go down into the depths, I will send a venomous serpent to sting you. Like, there is no place to hide from me. Yeah. I will get yeah. you. But then these moments turn, if you would just turn, if you would do what is right, maybe just maybe. So for me, prophetic literature must always be conceived of in light of the character of the God of Israel, Hmm. gracious and compassionate, abounding in love, uh, quick to forgive and slow to anger. It's always, it must be seen through that lens right? so that it's not a fate thing. But it's a responsibility to be like this God and to respond yeah. as this God would have it to be, which is exactly what gets highlighted in Jonah. Yeah. And and I think that, well, I mean, I don't want to derail our conversation because I want to stay here, but it does bring up such an important point about God and evil, right? And right. God and the use of evil, which when it's such a fate oriented prophetic calling that we think about it that way, then it really does seem as if when God says, I'm going to destroy you, that really, it means God himself is going to reach down and, you know, take the life away or destroy people or so on and so forth. But when there is a, a, a foretelling moment of, Hey, this destruction is going to come upon you, right? This, this thing is going to happen to you, but repent. There is a a sense in which it's not God who is necessarily himself being the author of evil, but there is a reality of God telling people, here's what happens when you engage in this reality. When you engage in the reality of evil, evil happens. So let, let me push back just a little bit. Oh, that's I know okay. you would. We've had this uh, conversation yeah, yeah. So, privately, but yeah. you know, let's go. <laughs> so, so for instance, again, going to Amos, uh, Amos has this, there's this long song, uh, 
the Lord is coming. He's on the march, right? Yeah. The, you know, the, the mountains basically melt before him. The seas shake, right? Here he is. He's on the march and he's wielding his sword and he's coming for judgment. Yeah. And so don't imagine that it's simply – so it, we have to think in that ancient Near Eastern context. Right. If you get destroyed by something – it's likely because of some other deity, whether it's that other people's God being more yep. powerful than your yep. God, whether it's some troubling deity who's able to raise up this type of storm or this type of disease or, you know, so this, there's always this element of the gods, the powers and principalities involved. And so the Lord is saying, eh, don't presume that it's actually them doing it. It's actually me. Yeah. So don't think it's because I'm weak. No, I'm actually the one who's showing up. So in Amos, the catchphrase, the Lord says, you guys sit around, you keep talking about and singing about the day of the Lord. Yay, the day of the Mm -hmm. Lord. The Lord will show up and he's going to slaughter our enemies and he's going to make them our slaves. And the Lord's like, yeah, I'm going to show up. I'm showing up to kick your booty. You know, I'm going to actually destroy you. You think of Joel, the locust horde. Which uh, the Proverbs say, there is no king over over the locusts. But Joel says, ah, I march at the head of my army and it's coming Mm. and I'm the one who's bringing it. So go ahead and sound the trumpet in Zion. But I'm the one who's bringing my army that will march on the city that will rush over the wall. And this pointing ahead to Assyria, this pointing ahead to Babylon, this. So he actually leads these. He's actively some form of agent in this, even if it's just for theological reasons that he states this. Right. So he's still using intermediaries, but it's like he doesn't want them to presume he's weak. Right. He's actually saying I'm strong. And it's not because the principalities and powers have done this. I'm doing this judgment. So, so help me out, Rick, with with this reality then, because you know that passage, those passages we talked about were kind of doom and gloom, right? And and there's passages like in in Amos where God says, "I hate your festivals, I hate your worship, I hate everything that you do that are actually the things that they're supposed to do in light of the Torah, like they're actually worshiping as they are, gathering together their sacrifices, their festivals, and all that kind of stuff." And how do we as the church read those passages in ways that we don't just do the first, what I would think is the wrong thing, which is just go, well, that was just for them. <laughs> That's not, that doesn't apply to our church today. That doesn't apply to us. How do we read that where we can be bene- benefited by the prophetic text without just saying, well, that was for them in their day. And that's not really for us anymore. Yeah. I mean, you, you remember, of course, in the New Testament, we get this language of uh, judgment begins with the house of the Lord. <laughs> that very language is picked up, right? Yeah. Uh, uh, Paul is pretty clear uh, about our being judged. If we're supposed to be judging, um, we will also be judged. Right. Uh, so, somehow we just imagine the, the niceties without the justice and the judgment of the Lord, that somehow he is, um, he is decisive speaking a no against us yeah even as he's declared a yes on our behalf right so uh just you know borrowing a little uh bartian phrase there uh, but yeah th- thinking through the prophetic tradition how do we engage them how do we listen to them uh i think again for me a, a big part of this again is to see the face of this god 
and cast ourselves upon this in the midst of all of our hearing of these texts yeah to see this particular god he is not like the gods of the nations around again you talk about amos um that that uh funeral song in chapter five mm-hmm. the theological center of that song is i am yahweh right that's my name why does he emphasize that oh i just want you guys to know my name no it is I am not a God like the nations. No, in fact, I do judge the gods of the nations. I stand above them. I will lay waste to them as to their people. But here's the deal. I will also redeem. I will have mercy. I will be covenantally faithful. I will abound in love. So the, the sense in which this particular God known by this name, this covenant name, uh, is always standing there. So in, in Isaiah, you know, uh, he he says, like, for instance, chapter 5 of Isaiah, he's got this little love song, this love poem that he speaks over the people. You know, you are my favorite little vine, and I planted you, and I built you a nice little garden, yep, and I yep. built walls and stuff. And all you gave me was wild grapes. Are you kidding me? I'm going to just destroy you. I did everything for you. I took. I did everything. I'm just going to tear down the walls. I'm done with you. Yeah. Right. He said, I showed up. I looked for justice, but I found perversity like wickedness. I all I could hear when I sought to hear righteousness was abuse. Mm. Right? So this, yeah. this sense yeah. of like, uh, how do we walk in faithfulness in light of who this God is? So we get really sucked into the foretelling element of the prophetic. Right. Yeah, Folks, almost like froth at the mouth. Oh, Israel will be restored according to these texts. Right. And, you know, this these events are going to happen. No, 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 no. Especially it's, that Daniel yeah. in times that, you know, that. Yeah. But forcing it heart, to be something it's not. It's hard. It's about what kind of people must we be? We must be like the branch that is righteous. We must be like the spirit endowed son of David. Right. Yeah. Uh, We must be as the one who embraces suffering in order to receive the the vindication of this God. Right. So we we become those who uh, act righteously to our neighbor, to the foreigner, to the stranger, to the widow, uh, to the poor. We care for them. We nurture them. We provide for them. Right. Of course, some of us just find ourselves among them. Right. So it seems it seems to me that. It really does seem to me that the prophetic texts are the most important text for our day. And and I hate to say most important, right? Because then I know the immediate response is like, well, there's no one Bible passage more important than the others. Or <laughs> right, And, and right. I agree, right? Yes, it is the Bible. It is completed as whole. But when I look and I survey what's happening in our culture, in our context in the United States – and how the church responds, it seems to me that the prophetic texts are the the very, uh, I don't want to say antidote, but the very surgery that we need uh, to understand what we should be doing today and how we need to be acting, how we need to be engaging. And to some degree, that scares me. And to some degree, it's it brings me hope. And there's right. kind of a weird mix of feelings between both of those things. But I think when we've missed the prophetic text, we can focus so much 
on a narrow version of the gospel that we actually forget how much of scripture is pushing us towards that very picture that you talked about, who we're supposed to be in light of the future. Right. And I, you know, it's, it's one of those things. Um, it, it may not even be just that the prophetic, in fact, I wouldn't say it's even that the prophetic texts are being ignored by folks. Right. It is that they are being improperly heard and applied. Mm, so yeah. that the hearing of them is more about foretelling. So right. the nation state of Israel, um, or is imagine, uh, it, it sometimes is imagined as you were saying that was for them, right? We just need to pick out the few little pieces that may pertain to us, but that was just for them. So it's, right. it, it's, it's actually a, just a poor hearing of the prophets, we actually become like Israel in rebellion and Judah in rebellion, who, as Isaiah says, have ears, but can't hear eyes, but can't see. We're still seeing. We're still hearing. We're just not actually listening. We're not actually perceiving. Right. right? Because of the hardness of our hearts. So to to plow up our hearts, if you will, to have heart surgery, to receive the spirit of the Lord so that we will have a heart after his heart, a heart like yeah. him, a hearts of flesh and not of stone. So, so, so beyond the, you know, foretelling, foretelling, we need to be better at recognizing, you know, foretelling and even foretelling for what it is in right, relation right. to that there is a reality of humanity's response uh, to what God is saying. Let's say today someone's like, hey, I want to better engage with the prophets. I, I, you know, haven't read it. I have, or if I have read it, I've really just skipped a lot of those things. What would you say are some ways that people can begin to read the prophetic text where they can see and hear what it is the Spirit is saying today? Yeah, a, a couple things that I would recommend and that I do. Uh, one is careful, slow reading repetitively again mm. and again and again and again. Yeah. Not, yeah, I read through the Bible in a year. Yeah. Uh, which, which it has its own benefits. I, I don't want to diminish that for folks, but uh, that slow, careful, meditative reading of the prophetic texts. Uh, ask questions. So keep like a, a Bible reading journal, um, notebook or something you could use your phone, just questions you have as you go to meditate on, right? So, so you're reading through, why does the prophet say this instead of this? Or what does this mean? Um, as, as ways of helping you to be uh, a more engaged reader. Yeah. Um, and particularly thinking, so um, while, while, I, while I don't like people to immediately say, what does this say to me? Because that, that just becomes problematic right. in its own way. Yet, I also don't want people to say, what does this word say to them? <laughs> yeah. Because right? yeah. Uh, we're really good at pointing the finger. Uh, we're also really good at finding ourselves. Usually we find ourselves in a positive way in the text. Oh, yeah. And we find others a very negative way in the text. So trying to avoid both of those. So both seeing, hearing ourselves, what must I do in light of this revelation? Um, but also... You know, like what what word is is this being spoken over more than just me as an individual? So instead of just trying to find myself in the text, yeah. For instance, in our own day and age, systemic issues were at play. Yeah, Isaiah is not just addressing individuals, even though he's also addressing individuals. Right. Amos is not. So Amos is addressing similarly a whole system of injustice that has been built up. 
where slave girls are, are basically being raped by the father and the son. Yeah. Where folks are taxing the poor, uh, are, are, are uh, abusing them by not returning the things that they gave for loans, you know, all, all sorts of stuff. But also addressing individuals. You fat cows of Bashan. You tell your husbands, <laughs> give me another drink. I'm thirsty for some more wine, you know, like yeah. literally calling out individuals. Right? Yeah. So it's, it's both in the community transformation, individual transformation, communal repentance, individual repentance. Right. Right. So, so I think really just spending a lot of time and, and it doesn't have to be all of the books, right? Focus in. Spend time with a prophet. And then I recommend also find other good resources. There's there's some decent commentaries for helping meditate, um, such as the interpretation series. It's just it, – it's basic, not overly basic. Uh, I've found it, it can be more helpful than some other series for a more meditative approach. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and I think that's great. I mean I think – as the church, we need to teach people not just to read the Bible, but to understand it. Right. Right. And we're really good at telling people to read the Bible, but we're not really good at being, giving the resources. Now here's how to best understand it. And here's some commentaries here's some things to help along the path, which actually, you know, puts a lot more work on our plate when we're reading the Bible. It's not just saying, Hey, just read your few chapters today or your, your, you know, Bible throughout the year. It, is, hey, actually, why don't you pick up this book and see what that means in that context, right? Now, as we're coming to an end, I'm going to throw a curveball. And this curveball is something that you and I have talked about once. And I want to hear an update and maybe to have our listeners hear this. Because when you told me I it was one of those passages of Scripture that I probably never really went slow enough with to actually recognize the weight of what was happening. And I know at the time that you had first mentioned it to me, you had said something similar to, I don't know what to do with this yet. Mm. So now I want to see if you can explain that passage and you might be (laughs) already knowing what I'm about to ask, but if you've come to any, here's what to do with this. And that is a passage in uh, the prophetic text about the redemption of Sodom and Gomorrah. And Mm, what Ezekiel, what we're doing with that passage. So as a, as a, as an example, almost of doing just what we talked about, just what you talked about in reading it. So if you wouldn't mind explaining that passage to our listeners, but then also kind of what was the wrestle and where you may be with it now. Yeah. And I, I would say I'm still wrestling with it, right? What, what exactly does this mean? And part of that um, without, I don't want this to sound like a cop out, but part of that is the mystery of this God. Yeah. Um, I, can you, can you give us all, the passage, yeah. uh, before jumping into that? Yeah. So I know that you have that more off the top of your head than I do. Yeah. And I, I, I was just tr- starting to turn, um, it, it is in, in Ezekiel and I'm trying to make sure yeah, it was such a curveball. I was like, you know, yeah. I just got to – I'm. this is gotcha. Gotcha journalism with you, Rick. This is. This is you definitely know? gotcha journalism. Yeah, the um, the issues of the the whoring ways of, of Judah uh, in the days of Ezekiel. Okay, so Ezekiel, yeah. So Ezekiel 16, verse 53, someday I will restore the fortunes of Sodom 
and Samaria, and I will restore you to. This is a word to <laughs> Jerusalem, yeah. to Judah. How in the world does that happen in light of being utterly consumed in fire and brimstone come from heaven? Yeah. You know, um, somehow, <laughs> uh, somehow the Lord is able to redeem, even though he says, so this goes back to our, our literally our discussion about fate, treating the prophetic as fate. Yeah. As if the, it's all just sealed up and done. And oftentimes the prophets speak as if that is the case. Right. But it's as if because of who our God is, there's always open the possibility in his divine loving freedom to do as he pleases, to do good, to redeem, to restore. So there are many cases where the Lord seems to speak like, I'm going to completely destroy you. Right. Yeah. There's not going to be any sounds of weddings or parties or anything. It's all done. You guys are toast. I'm killing every last one of you. And yet, and yet <laughs> oh, I'm going to have, and, and yet we, we get these little glimmers and this yeah. is like a shocking text. I'll restore yeah. Sodom. Are you kidding? How is that even possible? Uh, Samaria would seem to be more possible as the capital of the Northern kingdom that had gone into exile uh, you know, like 150 years prior to this text. Yeah. So they've been gone a long time. But the more radical, that, that thinking of Sodom, so no matter what happens, the Lord still holds the possibility out. Maybe, just maybe, he will have mercy. Yeah. Maybe, just maybe, his love will redeem despite the judgment. Now, what is this? I, I know what you're pressing for. <laughs> 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 oh yeah i mean you know, we don't you don't have to give any sol solids yeah. but it's just such an interesting passage there is any solids right uh, i honestly i don't think there is any solids i think for me to speak solidly about this beyond the character of this god and what he has made known of himself and what he may in fact do and seems to say he will do yeah uh to declare that it just is a given, that would be me to actually revert back into the idea of fate. Right. As if, oh, well, he just said, so it's just going to happen exactly like that. Well, I don't know yeah. how it's going to happen or what that even looks like. I just know this is a radical claim that the Lord somehow is able to redeem what is impossible to redeem. I mean, that, that's the whole point of Ezekiel. This is right. embedded in a book of that. Right. Oh. Which is, it's, it's, to me, it's such a fascinating passage because Sodom, of course, Sodom and Gomorrah are brought up multiple times, right? right. As kind of these examples of, of judgment, these examples of kind of how bad it can go for groups of people who don't listen and who, you know, live in wickedness. And it's fascinating that Sodom would specifically be mentioned as being restored, Again, mm -hmm. not in a fateful sense, but in a, if we think about it as a participatory, you know, human sense that God can redeem, God can do. It blows a lot of things, I think, out of the water for people that think about, again, like you were talking about that prophetic text of being, God said it, it's going to happen, It this is done and over. And it takes away any human responsibility, any human right. agency, any human action, any 
as if as if God were just a puppeteer in the sky, making mm. all this happen yeah. and making it all work however he sees fit. Yeah. It, it misses the, again, the primary element. So the prophetic literature is the revelation of this God. Yeah. So we treat that as what's going to happen. The Lord seems to have given this as who is he? And, and it's so important, I think, to say it that way too, as well as something that you said, just to kind of bring that back in. It is the revelation of this God to that people in that time in a way that they understood. Right. Which which is still helpful for us today. But if we don't understand those people in that time, that revelation for today may not make as much sense. Right. Right. Yes. Yes. And transporting it to the 21st century is one of the biggest problems. One of the biggest reasons why people don't really read the prophetic text that right. often. It's because bringing it into today is tough. Right. When you see everything that's happening in the prophetic texts. Well, Rick, been wonderful. Always love just chatting, let alone having you on Everyday Theology with me. So thanks so much for being here. If you've got anything that you have upcoming or any kind of ways, again, for people to be connected with you and your work, let us hear it. Yeah, certainly. Uh, Wadholm.com. That's W-A-D-H-O-L-M.com. It's my website. Um, all my social media is Rick Wadholm Jr. So Rick, W-A-D-H-O-L-M-J-R. Uh, whether that's Insta, whether that's Facebook, Twitter, whatever. It's all cool. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm excited for some of the books I've been working on for a long time to finally come out. Lord willing, this year, it's going to look like like I'm just a publishing machine, but it, it appears I may have four or five books that will come out this year. Oh, me, so, I'm, I'm excited for yeah. them. So go follow along. And when they do come out, we'll, uh, we'll let everyone know too. All right. Well, Rick, again, thanks so much for being with me, man. Thanks, man. We'll chat soon. All right.